Good morning. The reading today is from Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should all, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord, I'm humbled this week as you've been working in me. I feel a sense of following a long line of people, preachers, Paul being the forerunner to the Philippians. And now here we are reading Paul's letter to a church to this day, 2,000 years later. So would you be pleased to work through it as you have been through history this morning in our lives, using it to magnify the worth of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We're always praying for... uh, No technical difficulties, but that's not always the case, is it? He humbled me a couple weeks ago, and he's doing it again. Thank you, Lord, for that humility. So, those of you joining us now, um, we're preaching our way through Philippians. And today we find ourselves in the middle of a sermon series that Pastor Mike has aptly entitled Joyfully Following Jesus Together Till the End. Frankly, that would be a perfect sermon title for almost every sermon we've preached in this series and going to preach because it seems like every passage is supporting that phrase. So today it will be no different. We'll be talking about joyfully rejoicing like Paul following Jesus to his humility and then his exaltation together as a church until the end when we are exalted and given heavenly crowns. Since that title was taken, I've titled this Our Joyful Worship, or sorry, Our Joyful Working is Worship. So before we dive into the text, we got to backtrack and understand that we're not stumbling across this verse in isolation, this passage. We didn't receive these in a tweet from Paul. We're joining him in a long line of thought process, and now we're coming to the conclusion. So we need to understand that. First, of course, he's addressing believers, the Philippian church. He's not talking to unbelievers That's important to understand because he's not teaching us how to become a child of God in this text. He's teaching us 
what it looks like to be a child of God in this text. Uh, he magnifies the beauty and worth of Christ while he's in chains. He's facing his imminent possible death in prison. And yet he says, rejoice. Paul didn't have his letters to read like we do. This was original stuff. I don't know that I would come up with that if I was sitting in jail on my own. And in verse 29, he says something so astounding, something so difficult, it's hard to comprehend. This is probably the hardest thing about being a Christian and why many people reject the true gospel. He says, if you live like the world and you have their goals and their beliefs and their desires and you spend money on their behalf, on your behalf to buy big houses and nice cars and fine clothes, God will be glorified and magnified and the entire world will bow down to him. Oh, wait, no. Uh, sorry, I was reading the wrong thing. He said the exact opposite of that. He said, it's been granted to you. It's a gift to you that you suffer for the sake of Christ. People don't want to suffer. That doesn't make us happy. We want comfort and stuff. We want to feel good. This brings us to chapter 2 where Paul begins to describe what it looks like to imitate Christ. He says Christ emptied himself like Kyle was saying. He emptied himself. He put on this rancid human flesh, became a selfless servant, and then God exalted him for his obedience. And Paul is saying, if we love him, if we follow him, if we do that, God will exalt us. He's not saying this is how you're saved. He's saying this is how we show we are saved by our obedience. This is the exact opposite of the health-wealth message that has swept America and spreads across the globe, even this morning being preached from thousands of pulpits. So now we land at our text. There are many amazing points in this portion of Scripture, but we're preaching through fast this summer, and we're taking large portions, so I won't be able to cover everything. But I do have a main point and what I believe the overarching thought process of Paul is in this portion of Scripture, and I'm going to give it to you, and then we're going to repeat it. It's this. God's promise and power produce joyful worship for His good pleasure. God's promise and power produce joyful worship for His good pleasure pleasure. God works, then we work. God works, then we work. It's not the other way around. We don't work, so God will work. That will produce discouragement and despair. Struggling, spinning your wheels, trying. God's way produces faith and joy. I'm going to highlight three truths about God that Paul has in mind when exhorting us to good works. Number one, God's purpose is for our, for His pleasure. God's purpose is for His pleasure. Number two, He gives us a promise. And number three, the power to obey that promise. 
The first is the foundation on which everything else rests upon. So I'm thinking of like a building or, or like a Roman building. The foundation is God's pleasures and purpose. The columns are God's power and present promise. And then the top is our participation in His plan. So number one, God works for His good purpose and pleasure. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but much more in my absence. How many of us would love to have kids that obeyed better in our absence? We walk into their room, what have you been doing this whole time? It's a trash. I thought you were in here cleaning. He says, Philippians, since you've been doing these things, you've, you've been doing them so well, do them better after I die. Because I'm not going to be here anymore for you to imitate me. Do them better. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because for... Oh, where this... It is God who works in you. That's why we do it. Why does He work? Why do we work? For His good pleasure. That's our foundation. Your works and will are for God's pleasure. Why does Paul want to live a gospel-worthy life and us to imitate for the sake of others? Kind of. But that's not the main reason, and it's not the reason that he gives in this text. First and foremost, it is for God. Everything is built on this foundation. His good purposes are the reason we are on this earth in the first place. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, other translations say your pleasure, they exist. That's exciting. Everything was created for God. Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth. That's the opposite of a lot of preachers saying that today. It's just, I'll just be honest. They, they say God won't move until you move. That's not in the Bible. Ever. So all of creation is for His pleasure and glory. And Paul tells his disciples, which are us, in case you didn't know, our aim as Christians is to please God. Following Christ isn't you asking, what do I got to do not to go to hell? Although we should ask that. Rather, it's asking, how do I please God? We were created for his pleasure, Pleasure, so it should be our aim to learn what pleases Him. What we're going to be looking at this morning, the beginning and end of our salvation is not us, but it's God, His plan and His purpose. The beginning and the end is God. So His purpose is His pleasure. So that means our purpose is His pleasure. I recently had a conversation with someone who said they heard a pastor say from the pulpit, here's some news for you. Guess what? The Bible isn't about you. I'm sorry, the Bible isn't about God. It's about you. That's, that's, that's true. That's a true thing that somebody did. Of course, they're not actually reading the Bible. Not only is that heartbreaking and damning, 
It's a direct contradiction of Scripture. The Bible is clear who the Bible is about, and it's not you, it's God. Isaiah 43, 6, Bring my sons and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You were created and called for His glory. Paul says, we are God's workmanship. Where's workmanship? We are a result of His works, created in Christ. Why? For good works. We were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus Himself said in John 15, you didn't choose me. I know you think you did. It feels like you did if you're a Christian, but you didn't. He says, I chose you and appointed you that you should, what? Go and bear fruit. Romans 9, if you get a chance this week, slowly read through Romans 8, 9, and 10. Let it sink in. God declares that He made His children as glory-bearing vessels to make known, to display, to pour out the riches of His glory. We don't tell the potter how we are to be shaped or what we're used for that was already decided beforehand, before time, before the foundations of the earth for His good pleasure. And now we see it again in Philippians 2.13, for God works for His good pleasure. Everything in these verses is submitted to one paradigm-shifting, life-changing, self-sacrificial truth that everything was created by God and for God to display His glory. So I hope you let Scripture reorient your, your heart this morning away from the things of this world, away from yourselves, and onto Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So God's promise and power produce joyful worship for His good pleasure. Then there's the second two truths about God's work. The two pillars in this text that are participation, our good works, our worship, rest upon. That is the promise which makes obedience a delight and the power which makes obedience possible. Apart from either, we would fail miserably. This is not relying on you, so don't worry. Let's go to the text. Verse 12, the very beginning, the first word. I know you all know it. When we see it, therefore, we got to look what it's there for. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So we have, therefore, the therefore is a link back. It's our, it's our chain of thought. It's our reasoning saying, because of all the stuff I've said, all this stuff about Christ's humility and exaltation and all the stuff in verses 3 through 8, now this. And that's God's promise. That's where we find it. It's hidden in the therefore. This is the hope of the gospel. That someday we will be with Christ. So Paul points to Christ's humility, his obedience, his emptying, his becoming a servant, and the results are 
is exaltation. And similarly, he says, if you do that, if you obey, the results are a great reward. They are eternity with Christ. Therefore is the link to those infamous words that we now find ourselves looking at, work out your salvation. Paul's saying, look, Christ was obedient, he suffered, but he counted it joy. Why? Because God was going to exalt him above every name that is in heaven and on earth. So if you humble yourselves and you obey, even to the point of death like me, you also will be exalted with Christ. And by the way, you're going to love it. It's going to be joyful. You're going to love being a sacrifice. It's hard for us to understand. Eternal exaltation with Christ is a powerful motivation for Paul. And now he leans in on it. Verse 3, he says, I press on. Why? Because my citizenship is in heaven. It's not of this earth. And Jesus is going to take my lowly, disease-ridden, rancid flesh sack that I call a body. He's going to make it like His glorious, perfect, young, strong, healthy body. That's motivation. And Jesus says, rejoice and be glad because your reward is going to be great in heaven. Hebrews 11 says, this is really interesting. Read this again slowly. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham and Moses looked to Christ for their motivation. Look at that. That's that's astounding. And of course, Paul tells us that we are already seated in heaven with Christ. We're made alive with Him in Ephesians. We're seated next to Him in the heavenly places. He has done it, and He will complete it at our glorification. It's already, yet it's not finished. This is the believer's promise and the command. You are holy, be holy. Paul is using Christ's obedience as an example for us to motivate us. Jesus, knowing he would suffer, endured the cross anyway because of the joy set before him. Joy is a power motivator and a hope giver. So Christian, follow the example of your leader, Christ. God has promised that his children have a great reward exaltation, but it comes after great sacrifice, death. So live all of life as a testimony to the gospel because this momentary suffering will be infinitely worth it. Now truly, truly understanding this and having this be a part of your life prepares you for suffering. And it will come. And it's coming now. But it makes obedience no longer a duty, but a delight. Believing truths like this produces indestructible joy in the face of sacrifice and keeps us from idolatry in the face of abundance. Keeps us from idolatry in the face of abundance. 
So therefore, is God's promise that his children will be exalted and it serves as our motivation for our joyful worship, which is our working. God's promise and power produce joyful worship for his good pleasure. Pillar two, his power is our strength. It's our ability to work out this salvation that he's called us to do. Verse 12 and 13. Work, for it is God working in you. We are able to obey because God is working in us. He's working in all things for the good of those who love Him. Those who don't love Him don't have that promise. Don't say to somebody that's not a Christian, don't worry, all things are working out for your good. No, they are working out for God's good. For God's good pleasure. And guess what? If you're a believer, that's also working out for your good. Because you're his child. And you're going to be exalted. That's power. He guaranteed that he'll bring your good work that he began in you, the believer, to completion. Philippians 1, 6. If that's not assurance then I don't know what is, because that's awesome. God's power is powerful enough to save you, and it's powerful enough to sustain your joyful obedience. Because Paul gives us all these duties and commands and pressure. He says, deny yourself, die to yourself, sacrifice everything, give it away, live worthy of Christ. But he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us hopeless in our own strength. He gives us a promise and power, a motivation, and then the ability to carry it out. That's comforting. Without God's power working in me, I would lose faith. And we've seen it in this church. I love how Paul gives credit to God for everything he does. 1 Corinthians 15. I worked harder than you all. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in, with, in me. That, he said, I worked harder than you all. I did this, I did that, I traveled, I was shipwrecked. People tried to kill me, imprison me, chain me, beat me. And yet, I'm in this cell and I'm rejoicing and I'm writing letters for your joy. But it wasn't me. It was God. Right after Paul says that, he attributes all of his work to God. How comforting. Because God power, God's power enables us, that pillar, it upholds our strength. First, it does it through regeneration. It changes our hearts. It takes that hard stone heart and changes it to a heart of flesh like Ezekiel prophesied. He said, I'll take out your hard heart. I'll crush that stone heart with the Word, with my Holy Spirit. I'm going to remake it and give it flesh so that you love me, so you fear me, so you're able to see me as beautiful and that's going to carry you through. 
those hard times, through those trials, through that suffering. He realigns our will and our desires so that they point towards Him. So they land on Him. So our affections are Him. So He is glorious to us. And He gives us the grace and the Holy Spirit and the Word to continue doing that. Through this process, our minds and hearts are renewed and transformed and energized. As Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. Apart from me, you got nothing, buddy. And then he says, go and bear fruit. Go and bear that fruit. Knowing we're weak and sinful and unable, God works through us. He gives us a beautiful promise and the Holy Spirit's power that will enable us to our obedience and our humility and our servanthood for His good pleasure. So God's promise and power produce joyful worship for His good pleasure. Now we come to our works, the second half. Although it's really not a half. He does 100%. We kind of tag along. Our joyful working. God works first, then we work. God works, then we work. There's three realities about this that I want to highlight. One, our works are the fruit, not the root. I always work on how to say that. I never know how to say root. I've traveled too much. It's root, roof, root, I don't know. I never know. Number two, what a gospel-worthy life looks like to Paul. Three, working is joyful worship. Works are the fruit, not the root. Printers, gotta love them. Run out of paper. That's right. Our works. First thing is that the root is not the fruit and the fruit is not the root. That is so plain. Can I just get a Bible with that reference up here with my passage? Anybody got an actual Bible and that's not on their phone? (laughs) Thank you. The root is not the fruit. This is so easy to confuse. It's a result of something. It's a result of our treasure. It's a result of our joy. It's a result of loving Christ beyond anything. It's not about earning that credit, like as in Islam or another religion where they work really hard to earn favor with God. Look what he says in chapter 1. Verse 26 and 27, he says, Obey. Why? Because this is a sure sign of your salvation. It's not that we do it for salvation. It's that it is a sign of our salvation. You really have it. You're awesome. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Wonderful wife. Because I was like, what am I going to do? Remember in the past, this this swept America, the denominations, 
became fundamentalists. They, they started off well in good intentions and saying, we need to obey Christ. But then they eventually it became legalism. And if you didn't do that, or if you did do this or that, you were either saved or unsaved, like playing cards could send you to hell. Watching a movie, Veggie Tales could send you to hell. I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's not at all what Paul's saying. He's he's talking about grace. And he's he's the one that preached grace most out of anybody. And yet he's saying, here, work out your salvation. It's almost like what happened was, you know, we're under grace. We're free from the law is now translated in our society and our Christianity as we don't have to do anything. It doesn't matter what I do because I'm under grace. I've heard that 1,000 times too many. That's not what Paul meant about that. He said, yeah, we're not under the law. We were slaves to sin, though, and now we are slaves to something else. We're not just completely set free of everything and we're our, our autonomous and No, we are now slaves to righteousness, to God. I love what he says in Ephesians 2.8, where he says, By grace we're saved through faith, right? Not of works, so that no man can boast. So familiar with that. But look what he says right after it, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The order is very, very important. He works, then we work. So a Christian bears fruit because Christ is their joy and their treasure. Not in order to uh, you know, earn a, a rank with Christ. I love... I love what Paul tells the Ephesians, he's, he, or I mean the Philippians. He walks in there, he's like, you know, I was visiting your house, and man, all I see is Viking stuff. It's like, you're just talking about the game, and who's drafted, and all this stuff, you know? Like, yeah, I know, you know, having season tickets doesn't make you a fan, but it shows what you love, right? It says, What about your life? Screams, I love Christ. I treasure Christ over all else. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not just about money. It's about a life that treasures something. Obedience flows from a faith and a joy in Christ. I love this. The the king created his children for good works, not to become children of the king, but to live like them. So how do we live like children of the king? This is my second point, a fruit of a gospel-worthy life. We're going to really fly through this section because there's a lot of really great points about what it means to follow Christ and look like him. Um, so I apologize if you ever heard of Secret Church. I'm going to be David Platt here, and I'm just going to like go at 100 miles an hour talking. Okay, 
Um, when I was preparing for this, it was really cool. I just went through Philippians. I encourage you should do this. And I just wrote down all the things that Paul considers a gospel-worthy life or, or traits that he would say a Christian should have or do. I came up with 113. There's probably more than that, and they could probably be divided too. But our text, he's got 12. We're not going to cover them all, and I'll combine a couple. So take these to heart. Live them out. Write them down or go download this sermon afterwards. Let's go. A gospel-worthy life obeys Christ. First sentence. My beloved, as you have always obeyed. Jesus made it plain in John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If you love Christ, you will keep his word. Gospel-worthy lives fear God. I wanted to preach an entire sermon on this. I have like one minute to do it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We work out our salvation out of respect and awe for the maker and creator of heaven and earth. The fear of condemnation and judgment and death that unbelievers have disappears when we are in Christ. We are left not with a crippling fear, but a serious reverence and awe for God's holiness and power and wrath. We're grateful that we're on His side and we're intentional to stay there. The author of Hebrews puts it so well. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We already have it, so we live it out. And that let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. No doubt, he's looking back to Aaron's sons who were priests, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, who offered unacceptable sacrifices on the the altar and God consumed them with fire. God is not our personal genie to rub and have our wish granted. We don't worship him fancy free any way we like. We worship him in spirit and in truth because he is jealous for his glory. And he desires right worship and right obedience. The Christian life is, as my school's motto puts it, serious joy. Gospel-worthy lives do not grumble or dispute. Let me tell you, I fail at this one every single day. Couldn't even make it through this sermon prep. I was complaining, and I looked up at my screen, and it I was working on this very passage, on this very verse. Kids, could you even imagine going one day or one hour without grumbling? Can you please try? (laughs) God tells us to do every single thing without grumbling and complaining, even you adults, myself. He says, no air conditioning, no complaining. Paul didn't even know what air conditioning was. Like, that's crazy. No clean clothes, no arguing. Cancer, rejoice. Because God is working in you to perfect you, 
to exalt you through this trial. And when you do it joyfully, it is a sweet-smelling aroma, a sacrifice on the altar to our God, to our treasure. Paul knew so well what pain and tragedy were, far greater than any of us could understand. And yet he says, I'll boast more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ will rest on me. Thank you, God, for supplying us with power because we couldn't do it without you. Gospel-worthy lives are blameless, innocent, and without blemish. I love these words. We can read them so quickly, but they are describing something. They're describing that sacrifice. He's using the same terminology as he would use to describe a lamb or a dove, something pure and holy, worthy to be brought and slaughtered on the altar. He's not just talking about not stealing at work. Although, that falls into this. Paul says, we are those sacrifices, so live like it. That's how Christ gave himself up. And he didn't complain or grumble. First Peter says he did it without even opening his mouth or reviling. Those who persecuted him. But Paul is quick to say, and he will say in Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already attained this, or I am perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ made me his own. Gospel-worthy lives shine as lights in a perverse world. Paul uses the word twisted and perverse to describe the world we live in, They change God's good things, his good pleasures, into immorality and vileness and evilness. And we're called not to escape them, but to live among them. And we're going to shine like lights when we display that we love something greater than what they have and we live for something other than their messed up morality. And then they feel judged and condemned and we don't even have to open up our mouth because they have just enough knowledge and morality to know that they are wrong. So they suppress that truth. When you bear fruit, it will be seen as evil. When you save a baby's life, it will be seen as hurting the mother's choice to have promiscuous sex. Because they value that above God's precious life made in His image. Because it reminds them of the wonders and glories of God. When you tweet a Bible verse, be prepared be fired from your job because it will be labeled hate speech because people love the darkness. It's their security blanket hiding their evil. They're comfortable and they're with their friends having fun. And then you walk in the room and you flick on the light switch. There's, there's someone right there stealing and there's someone you know, murdering someone and there's someone back here hating people and someone committing adultery. Like, turn the light off! Don't be surprised when they hate you because their light, your light offends their senses and their morality. That's what it means to live a gospel-worthy life. But remember, people must feel the weight and heinousness of their sin if they are to repent of it. Because repentance and faith are the only means of salvation and God uses your light and 
and his Holy Spirit to convict them. So they're either going to love God and glorify him and hate their sin and reject their sin, or they're going to continue in the darkness and love their sin and remain under condemnation. Gospel-worthy lives hold fast to the Word of God. Without that, we would die. We would perish. Gospel-worthy lives sacrifice joyfully. Now we come to the last point. God's good works are joyful worship. This is the hardest part, right? But I've been saying it this whole time. Good works are done in faith out of a love for God. Remember how Paul described his life in verse 17? He's comparing his impending death and ministry for the Philippians to the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of their faith. And Paul says that's our attitude that we need to adopt because that's the attitude of Christ. It's emptying ourselves out of a deep love for God. That's New Testament worship. Now notice this. This is so cool. There are no Christians who are allowed to just float through life not getting on that altar, living like the world, loving the world's stuff and their system. All this sacrifice stuff is not just for super Christians like Paul. Look closely. It's two sacrifices here. He calls his life and ministry to them a drink offering. This was an additional offering. It was usually wine, unmixed, pure, that was poured out at the base of the main offering. And Paul's telling the Philippians, you guys are the main offering. I'm the second offering. I'm being poured out on your offering, on the sacrificial offering of your faith. So be glad and rejoice. We're both being sacrificed for the sake of the gospel together. And I'm sealing it. I'm saying you are saved. I'm saying you are in Christ. You will be exalted. Because he's made you that way. He's made you children of God. The normal Christian life is joyful sacrifice. Our time and our energy, our possessions and money, our family, our kids, our job, our retirement, our entertainment, all belong on the altar as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Paul pleads, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. We show God's value when we die to ourselves and live for Christ over the world. We show that He's worth dying for. And therefore, He is worth living for. Our inward salvation works its way out to the outside and our, our life becomes joyful worship. Because everything now in our life is screaming, Christ is my treasure. I love Him more than Netflix. I love Him more than football. I love Him more than that new instrument or car. And our obedience is God's pleasure when it proves that God is our treasure, said one great man of God. So, God's promise and power produce joyful worship for His good pleasure. I conclude with this illustration. 
we got two paths in front of us. We're at the fork in the road. On one hand, we can pursue the pleasures of the kingdom of this world, filled with sensuality and entertainment and money and, and comedy and clothing and luxury and fine food. But after a while, that leads to eternal death, eternal torment and misery. Or we can seek after God's kingdom with endless eternal pleasures forevermore. Luxuries, fine foods, carpets, comforts, no pain, no sorrow, eternal life, and utter satisfaction and joy with Jesus forevermore. That seems like an easy choice. But there's a catch. In this world and facing us right now, this path is narrow, it's difficult, it's hard, and it's sacrifice. And no one on their earthly mind chooses it. There's very few people on it, and most of them are weird. And it leads straight to death on a cross, a bloody cross. And the world's road is wide. It's easy. It has that new black tar that's so smooth. It's going downhill. It's luxury, entertainment, lots of cool and funny people having a great time. And it makes the most sense to go down that road. It leads to a beautiful cat castle with soft beds and butlers. To make that hard decision harder, people are not able to see the ends of those paths without Christ. We're unable to see the glories of heaven or the destructions of hell. Many attempt to believe they get on this path, they struggle for a while, and they get off because they never had Christ. They never treasured Him above all things. They just wanted that thing beyond the grave. They just wanted the good life. That is the good life. That is the good path. And this is what it looks like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not that you raised your hand or said a prayer one time in your life, but you continually choose to live on the difficult path of self-sacrifice, taking up your cross and following Jesus to your death. And Paul said, that's the sign of your salvation. Conversely, this is the sign of your destruction. So think back to our question. How can I please God? One, begin by reading the Word. Start in John through the New Testament. Make note of what God loves and hates and what He wants you to do to worship Him with your life. Maybe it's different than you're doing right now. Second, pursue ways to serve God and people. He gives you grace. He gives you strength. He energizes you when you do those things. It's part of His power and plan. Three, Think about this kingdom analogy often. Which kingdom are you serving? Because sin is anything desiring this or moving towards this and taking your eyes off Christ and saying, I want what they have. I want it easy. I want it shiny. I'm good. I deserve a good life. I've worked hard. Everyone does it. Everyone struggles with it. And Paul said, whatever does not proceed from faith, 
in Christ is sin. Whatever, think about that, whatever does not proceed from faith in Christ is sin. When are we going to start trading our entertainment for the prayer closet? And we, conversely, glorify God. We please God by rejecting that other system and those desires. And the way we do that is taking our cross, heading to our grave, sacrificing and helping and loving God and people on the way. And then we get to rejoice in Christ's sufferings because He's going to come. He's going to glorify Himself. He's going to be made known. Everybody's going to bow. He's going to exalt those people, and these people will not be rejoicing. Christian, I'm encouraging you, I'm challenging you this morning with tough things, with these tough questions. So give this serious serious thought. God, if anything I have said is of the flesh, may it be burned up. If it's of you, if it's a word of life, may it go forth and do its work. It may produce fruit. Question, believer, ask yourself, do I have indestructible joy? Is my lifestyle holy, sacrificial, an offering to God? Do I treasure Christ above all else? Am I on the narrow, difficult path or the wide road? An unbeliever. If you don't know Christ, you can't answer those questions. But God can change you. This morning is your morning. You are not promised even the ride home. We are only promised one thing, and that is death. Don't let it be eternal. Cry out to Christ to change your heart. Open your eyes to see His beauty as glorious, and He will exalt you. You're not good. You don't deserve exaltation. You've broken His commandments. You've hated Him. You've rebelled from Him. And apart from Christ, you deserve death. You deserve hell. There will be no innocent people in hell. Only those who have chosen to rebel against God. Repent this morning. Put your faith in Christ Commit your life wholly to Him. Offer yourself a living sacrifice on the altar. Trust in Him for your salvation alone, not your works, not your obedience, not anything you do. And Christ will exalt you and seat you next to Him in the last day. And He's going to give you the power to live out this life in obedience to Him, out of love for Him, joyfully giving yourself sacrificially to worship with everything you do. So join me, Paul, Grace Church, and other believers in the new age to come as we treasure Christ forever.